Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the new edition of TLS Voices, the final show of this year. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the Times Literary Supplement. I'm joined as ever by commissioning editor and feisty wine taster, Thea Leonardetsi. Thea, I promised you last week I wouldn't call you feisty because you hate it more than anything else. I I think I actually prefer gouty pronunciation expert or whatever it was last week. Maybe I'll do gouty. In the new year, you'll be gouty. (laughs) Why do you hate feisty so much? Oh, it's just... Gendered language. Patronising gendered language. (laughs) I'm pleased I've launched straight into it. Uh, In the spirit of the season, we are both clad in reindeer antlers and garish Christmas jumpers. We're obviously not really Christmas jumpers are. And the competition is fierce among the worst aspects of Western culture. Alas, coming up on the show, speaking of the decline of the West, we have a 12-page politics special in the bumper double TLS this week entitled Departures in the West. It carries pieces on the racial legacy of Obama, the political inheritance of Justin Trudeau, the manner in which Ireland commemorated the Easter Rising and asks and seeks to answer two questions. Why are the French so miserable and why is Turkey so divided? It also, sadly prophetically, has a piece on the rise of the far right in Germany. We're recording this after 12 people were killed by a hijacked truck ploughing into a Berlin Christmas market. The attack is currently being blamed on an asylum seeker to Germany, although the perpetrator may still be at large. The issue also features two pieces on Brexit, One examines the policy challenges and the unlikelihood of a solution. The other, by James O'Brien, considers how we got where we are. He'll be joining Thea and me to discuss. And we're beginning a new tradition at the TLS this year. Our Books of the Year issue normally proves popular, so we have extended the principle to the arts. Indie pop star Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, will be in the studio explaining what our contributors have enjoyed most in 2016. And finally, in honour of the season, we shall consider not the birth of Jesus, we did that last week, but the invention of champagne. Why is it so expensive and how has it retained cultural privilege over the years? Our philosophy editor and oinophile Tim Crane will explain. So 2016 was the year of either electoral surprises or commentariat hubris, depending on your perspective. The TLS had a front cover in May with a cartoon by Axel Scheffler, he of the Gruffalo fame, in which a worried-looking lion pointed to the figure of Britannia, looking pensively across the channel, and said... She's not going to do it, is she? Well, she did. And on June the 23rd, 2016, Britain voted for Brexit by a margin of 52% to 48%. Well, was this a courageous assertion of sovereignty or an inchoate shriek of rage at decades of governmental failures? A victory for intolerance and normalisation of racial hatred or a legitimate attempt for an island to control its own destiny and borders? Questions without clear answers, perhaps, further complicated by other questions. What does Brexit mean? What does it look like? And why do metaphors around hard and soft Brexit make you feel so queasy? Well, journalist James O'Brien, colleague of mine on LBC Radio, but also a regular presenter of Newsnight on the Ramoning BBC we'll be talking a bit about that and its unfairness as a claim, has had the unenviable task of reading the various post-mortems of Brexit that were published in its aftermath. He joins Thea and me now. Uh, James, before we get to the politics, what was it like as a reading experience going through the Brexit literature? Were there any books that actually you thought, oh, that's a good book, that's a nicely written, enjoyable book? Yeah, yeah, it was an unleavened diet, yeah, certainly. <laughs> but um, uh, Tim Shipman's book was, was, was by far the best. He's the political editor of the Sunday Times. And 
I think the best way to explain it, perhaps, for people who are Brexited up to the eyeballs at the moment, is you know how somebody like Brian Cox can make science interesting, even if you don't like science? Yeah. Or Jeremy Clarkson, you might not like cars, but he somehow can bring the subject alive. Gordon Ramsay as a chef. Shipman's got that ability in print uh, with politics. He's so excited by it all. He's so immersed in it all. And he's so impeccably well connected to all of the key players that he, he really has managed to, to, to spin a yarn that almost deserves the description of being a page-turner. And what do we learn about the campaigns? What, I mean, cause you, speaking of people who are excited and immersed by politics, <laughs> James, that equally could be bounced back at you. Did you learn anything from this I stuff? What did you um, learn? The, the key lesson, because uh, as, as someone who is increasingly worried that Project Fear may well turn out to be Project Fact, I sort of look back on how it happened with a degree, or I did before I read these books, with still with a degree of bewilderment. Uh, I, I, I mean, the lines about the country being tired of experts issued by Michael Gove. You presume in a, in a relatively well-educated country that that will go down with a majority of the country like a bucket of cold sick. Of course, the discovery that it didn't, the discovery that Gove had actually somehow tapped into a, a, almost an age of unenlightenment had me truly baffled. But I think it had more to do with tactics than message in the end. I think it had more to do with medium the message and what you pick up from Shipman's book and then uh, unintentionally from Craig Oliver's book. He was David Cameron's director of communications and very unintentionally he drives home a point that's intentionally driven home by Aaron Banks, the diamond-owning anti-elitist who <laughs> makes enormous diamond-mine-owning anti-elitist who makes uh, donations to, to, to UKIP and the, the Leave EU side of the campaign. It was, it was they, they were prepared to do anything to win. No, not just the Farage faction, but Dominic Cummings who ran the, the official Leave campaign, they were absolutely prepared to do anything to win. They, they would, you know, you get the impression they'd have sold their own grandmothers. Whereas the Remain side was, uh, I, I mean, if I, it's hard to use a descriptive word without sounding sententious, but that they were calmer and they were more measured and more traditional. Now, that sounds like I'm being charitable and trying to defend them. I would add to that, they were probably naive. They should have seen the sort of war that was being waged from the other side and responded accordingly. And I think when they tried to, when they sort of went down that road of perhaps exaggerating fears and embellishing predictions, they thought they were fighting fire with fire. But what you gather from the books is they were never fighting fire with fire. They were sort of fighting fire with a half-deflated balloon. Mm, there's, a, there's a clear sense in which the, the Remain campaign, their failure was in a sense a failure to perform. Um, Absolutely to, to a failure entertain. to perform. Yes, I, I mean, a failure to engage, actually, I would say. You can't think... Would you think of anyone... In fact, off the top of your head, can you remember who was in charge of the Labour Remain campaign? No, although I think you tell us in the review... Uh, yeah, it was the, Alan... Alan uh, Johnson. Johnson, Johnson sorry. So, so yeah. that, that was a double take for me. I thought, was well, he really? I think that might, they might have got that wrong. I had to check, <laughs> and of course it was him. He was supposed to be up there on a level and on a scale comparable to a to a Gove or a Boris Johnson or even a Nigel Farage. And yet you can't really name a, a passionate, inspirational person who spoke up for the Remain side during the whole the whole campaign, the whole process. And that, I think, is, is the lesson that you learn from these books. But here's the thing, James. I mean, could you have articulated... Because the problem, I suppose, for the, for the Remain argument is theirs was a nuanced argument, which is yes. this is not a perfect situation. It is the better than not having it we believe from the evidence we currently have available and if you pitch that against if you are concerned about immigration and globalization you should want out of the eu the latter is simple and yeah. comprehensible the first the former is 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 kind of hard to, to encapsulate in any key slogan or key idea it, it is i mean except for sort of joni mitchell saying you don't know what you've got till it's gone but that was unlikely to sort of dominate billboards or anything like that i think it's possibly it's possibly even subtler than that, in that the Remain didn't know what, what they were fighting against or what they were fighting with. And, and it, 2020 hindsight is a wonderful thing. But how could they have made a case for the immigration side of things, given that uh, the, the prime minister who called the referendum is a conservative? So the only real counter-argument you have to immigration fears is... Uh, apportioning responsibility for perceived problems to other sources. So you say, well, look, the, the, you know, the NHS has had its funding cut hugely, ditto schools. So if there really is a strain on the public services, which is the phrase you kept hearing, it's, it's patently the fault, the fault of the current government. But given that the current government was effectively running the Remain campaign, it was highly unlikely to say the least that they'd ever come out, ever come out and say about anything. Actually, it's not immigrants that are responsible for this problem, it's us. And that, you realise as you read these books, again, was a sort of 
almost a perfect storm that, that no one could fight their way out of. And how um, how does Jeremy Corbyn come oh, out of these books? That, 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 that is a rare area, a rare area of consensus, borderline unanimity <laughs> on Jeremy Corbyn being one of the most potent weapons for the Leave campaign, despite ostensibly being a Remain campaigner. The, 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 the frustration at Downing Street that's communicated in Craig Oliver's book, and actually also in Anthony Seldon's book that I reviewed to you a couple of months ago, that, that, that fury about just expecting Labour in general and Corbyn in particular to just do something and maybe even to make the case that I've just described he could have made the case for saying don't blame immigration don't blame immigration for this blame the government now we might be on the same side in this argument but I'm here to tell you that this 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 and this are not down to immigration or border control they're down to austerity they're down to unnecessary cuts they're down to deliberate sort of defunding and demoralizing of public and he that's supposed to be his credo that's sort of you know Chomsky diluted by Corbyn in a nutshell, and you never heard any of that. And you didn't just not hear any of that. You, you didn't hear a squeak out of the man for the entire campaign. And everybody feels that that may have been a crucial factor in the eventual I, outcome. I thought it was interesting about Jeremy Corbyn. Unlike any other politician, he believes in full immigration, but is suspicious of the single market. And yet everybody else on all political sides wants to be part of the single market, but wants to cut immigration. So he has ideological problems left, right and centre on this, because he's probably a Brexiteer by inclination, because yep. he's against sort of the big business side of the EU. In the north of England, he has to be an anti-immigrant Brexiteer, but he's yep. a pro-immigrant Brexiteer. And in the south, he has to be a pro-immigrant Remainer. And so he can't really, he can't really win, can he? Because the Labour... Po- this is a schism within the Labour Party that any leader would have struggled with, arguably. I think, I, I think so. I'm trying to work out what the opposite of all things to all people yeah, is. Yeah. I think he possibly just described it. I, I think his opposition to the EU is, is uh, actually built more upon the belief in state ownership. I think as the Corbyn Macdonald project coalesces in 2017, you'll see that, that a lot of their reasons for not campaigning more uh, freely is that European Union law would have prevented... Uh, some sort of almost compulsory renationalisation yeah. that I genuinely think they do believe in, and, and, and EU membership could have been an obstacle to that. But you see, you're right, you highlight the problem Labour have got in general, with Andy Burnham now apparently sort of hitching himself to the anti-immigration tiger as he seeks to become mayor of Manchester. The problem is that, that even if Corbyn had a message you could disagree with, if it was out there, clear and centre, and you knew what that message was, then, then you can take a view on it one way or the other. But I think it was... I honestly believe it was an absence. Absence is the only word to describe his role in the campaign. And, and I can think of three or four Labour politicians who could at least have, have made a, a, a job of outlining a, dis, a position and defending it, sticking to it. The other thing I want to reflect on briefly is, and this has occurred to me more and more as I think more and more about this, the, mm. the most striking failure in all of this, and this is whether you believe in Brexit or not, is yes. the failure of David Cameron's government to plan at all for it. Because it seems to me that if you're giving the country a 50-50 decision and you're running the country, your sole responsibility is to ensure that whatever decision the country takes, there is a plan, there are contingencies in place, there is a department already, their ideas have been worked, the, the roadmap to Article 50 has been sense tested and checked and thought over. And it occurs to me, I don't know if this is just horribly naive, James, that mm. while believing in Remain, should he have not have said, I'm the Prime Minister of this country... My job is to make sure the ship of state continually sails whatever comes in its way. My job is to make sure there is a department in place planning for Brexit because Brexit is a possibility. He lucked out on the Scottish referendum because he got the result he wanted and he didn't on this one. But in the end, is the person to blame for this mess the most of everybody, David Cameron? Well, I mean, the first part of the mess, obviously. I don't think George Osborne, again, you learn from, I think, Tim Shipman's book that George Osborne was quite passionately opposed to the very idea of having a referendum. So responsibility for the mess that the referendum has created, definitely. I don't know if it's naive to suggest that David Cameron should have had stuff in place, but just contemplate for a moment what what a very rabidly pro-Leave newspaper would have done with any information it could get hold of about what he was doing to prepare for a Leave vote. They would have presented it to their readers as, as proof that the government thought it was going to happen. They were already secretly planning for it. Yeah. And, and I, I, I think in propaganda terms, it would have been injurious to do that. And, and don't forget that the, the, the sort of more knee-jerk side of the Leave arguments are still sort of saying that Cameron or indeed Theresa May could somehow have triggered Article 50 immediately and that that would have been preferable. And that's a position of such chuntering idiocy that you, 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 you kind of conclude that the, that the best path would have been somewhere in between the two. So if he could have secretly put stuff in place that would make this period, this transitional period, 
less problematic or less confusing, that would have been good. But I can't think what he could. But have can done you be that. a prime minister and actually say, "I can't be a prime minister and run the Remain campaign," which he kind of tried to do? Do you think he could have know. sort of uh, exempted himself from that? I think he so passionately believed that yeah. we should stay. He just again, he, he failed. Actually, he didn't provide any real leadership when you think about yeah, it. I, don't I remember I, a passionate phrase from him that made me go, "God damn it, he's right." I don't think he ever conceived that it could could happen. I mean, I That's think the way he handled like. the immediate aftermath, i.e., he didn't, he resigned. I think that says mm. a lot about the kind of leader that he was. He was blinkered and, and a coward, and, and a bit um, petulant, perhaps. Mm. Absolutely. I, I mean, you see it the same with Ed Miliband leaving the Labour Party in the lurch and the interregnum that perhaps he could have presided over would have brought at least some stability and calm while they decided who the next leader should be. I, I'm always slightly wary of that school of thought. That it's the received wisdom, isn't it, that if you if you lose, you walk away immediately. I, I think quite often it appears that by walking away immediately, you exacerbate the damage that your defeat has already done, and I'd certainly offer up Cameron as a case study for that. But if, as you say, it hadn't really crossed his mind, I always think of Johnson and uh, Gove the next morning, looking <laughs> yeah. like you know, you're looking like teenage arsonists. Someone wrote who'd accidentally burned the school down. They couldn't quite believe what had happened, and if they're shocked by it, imagine how the heck Cameron felt. Well, that's very fair. Uh, just, just lastly, James, is this yeah. uh, is this the most exciting time? And, and I use exciting. Maybe I should use this I sort know, of the Chinese do. proverb, interesting time. But you know, you know yeah. what I mean. Is this is this the most political time you think of because you've been around a little bit um over the last 20 years or so it feels like it's very it's very highly charged everything is so highly charged. I, I, yeah I, I think it's entirely unprecedented i think 2016 has taught us that the, the, the civilization as we know it is actually only a veneer that ancient hatreds and uh, ancient tribal uh, instincts are, are bubbling away for significant swathes of the population just below the surface and uh, I, I would never have said this at the beginning of last year but at the beginning of 2017 I would not rule anything out uh, in the context of Vladimir Putin rising in the east uh, far-right nationalism rising in the west uh, Donald Trump risen in America I, I, I'd not one for apocalyptic prediction so I won't make one except to say that I, absolutely anything could happen in the next year Well Joseph Wright thank you so much for it's a great piece and thank you so much for writing for us and coming on today Thank you thank you very much And you know the other part the other pieces in the paper we have in this politics special you know you look at France that's talking about the rise of nationalism Mm. The rise of anti-globalisation. The rise of neoliberalism. Neoliberalism is the phrase, mm. isn't it? Then you have Turkey, where the nationalistic rise is already there and we have a dictator in place. And then Germany, and today it's a very poignant time to talk about Germany because we 12 people were murdered in a Berlin Christmas market last night. And there's a very strong school of thought, which is how many such tragedies can Angela Merkel sustain and still retain a position of authority when there are elections in, in September probably of of next year. So you could have Le Pen in France, Wilders in Holland. And Italy, I mean, we, and have, a, we have an interim, we have another man in, in power who was not elected by the people. <laughs> and there, will there be Italian elections, do you think? Uh, yes, there will be, but not, I don't think, for the foreseeable. And what uh, although they'll be pushed, you know, the, the Grillini and the, um, and the Lega will be pushing and for. any predictions you could make about what Italy would do? At I think I have to go with James O'Brien on this. There's nothing that I don't think... There's nothing that I, do, that I don't think could happen. Yeah, if, if you're not ruling anything sense. out. I'm not ruling anything out is the better way of putting that. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Certainly, I mean, in this, in this issue, I think there's just so much stuff. If anyone were worried that the conversation would run dry over the Christmas goose, then there's plenty to discuss or, you know, read, fight about there is. Um, here. There is. But, and, and yeah, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. We'll get to that now, in fact. If I see Lucy... Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do 
not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Alice here. Come in and we shall discuss the arts of the year. A couple of weeks ago, we gathered together here on this podcast in a mutual shaming session to discuss the books of the year and admit grudgingly how few books we actually have read. It was so cathartic, we thought we'd try it again, but expand the field of our own inadequacy into the arts. That way we could confess to plays we have not seen, exhibitions we have not attended, operas we have shunned, and so on. Chief Dodger of Culture is, of course, our arts editor, the operatic Lucy Dallas of minor indie band fame. She joins Thea and me in the studio now. Hello. I think Chief Dodger of Culture is my favourite um, <laughs> is my favourite job title. Really? I, I might now have that as my yeah. official title. Maybe go on right. your email. Yep. Chief yeah, Dodger yeah. of Culture, minor indie band fame. No, no, just just Dodger. Yeah, OK. <laughs> Let's start Artful in... Artful Dodger. The, the Artful, exactly. the Artful exactly. Dodger. That's a good nickname. Okay, we'll move on. Uh, <laughs> let's start with opera and dance, uh, Lucy, because I introduced you as operatic. And of course, as Ferdinand Mount said on this podcast a while ago, you are a very good opera singer, aren't you? Lovely, Ferdy. Uh, no, I'm not. It was very nice of Ferdy to say that. I suppose I should explain a bit more. We've never done, as far as I'm aware, the, in the TLS, or not in recent memory, the arts of the year. Uh, we do books of the year every year. It's very popular. People sort of talk about their favourite books. We did a podcast on it. And so the idea this year is that we would get 12 of our contributors to say, here are the things that we watched or listened to this year that that meant something to us in some way Mm, yes in fact it's turned out to be 13 because we're not at all superstitious well done so let's start Uh, with opera yeah and and it's a lovely spread actually i think and um and it was all very very good fun to do with opera in terms of english opera the sort of story of the year was that is that english national opera is in trouble and has been troubling for a while but it's particularly in trouble why is it in trouble because they haven't got any money Basically, and in fact, uh, what our, our reviewer Guy Dammon says, he says there is a question now as to whether whether the capital can afford two big major opera houses in one city. Uh, it's not uh, as well funded as a Royal Opera House, and it never has been. But is, this, is this cyclical then? I mean, it's interesting. That are, are fewer people going to the opera? Is opera less of a press? I, I don't know many people of a younger generation who love the opera. Is that fair to say? Is it, is it something yes, that but I think I mean in, in the same way that if you go to the theatre quite often it depends what it depends what sort of thing you go to. There are there are operas where the the audience is much younger, um, but they had the same problem I think that lots of people do in that the you know that it, it's expensive apart from yeah. anything else, and it's quite difficult to sort of get into. Or, you know, if, if if you haven't been introduced to it before. But I feel with ballet, for example, there's a similar challenge to ballet, yeah. clearly. Yeah. And yet over the last 10 years, it feels that that challenge has been openly embraced. Ballet, right? ballet has got kind of much groovier and much hipper. Whereas opera, it depends what you're doing. The new operas and little opera companies have got hipper. But, but um, the danger of trying to make... Don Giovanni hip or something like that is that it just it can just be a bit embarrassing yeah you know you also have to trust your material it's like it's like Shakespeare you've got to be careful how you mess with it yeah so what's been on well what our reviewer Guy Damon says was very good this year was uh, Tristan and Isolde at ENO uh, and also the uh, Lulu which the, the which was designed by the uh, the artist William Kentridge so it started off at the Met in New York yeah because there's a partnership isn't there between the ENO and the Met yes yes there is and this is one of the, the of the great successes artistically and I think otherwise and he said that was wonderful and I think lots of people said that was wonderful actually and Theo as an Italian is, is, is opera part of Italian culture growing up, do you, do you regard opera as a, as a thing if you were an Italian growing up? 
I did. I didn't personally. No. I'm sure it is more of a thing there. I have been, and you know, everyone probably well, not everyone, but lots of people do end up going to the amphitheaters. We yes, do I have them, and they are one. used. I fell asleep, and they in are beautiful. Yeah, yeah, it was quite. It was stony, extremely uncomfortable, and it was. But it was. Yeah, and it might and rain. Still in which case, to you'll fall asleep. You still managed to sit. And why was that? It wasn't very good. It was very boring. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't think. Long. I think. I mean, I, obviously, I haven't lived there for ten years, nearly now, and I, I couldn't tell you whether much has been done to modernise. It's just um, interesting when we talk opera because i've been to a few and i've enjoyed it to a certain extent i don't want to want this to be a, a total celebration of our philistinism but <laughs> it's hard to see it's it's hard to see its play i can't I, I, no i think it's place i think it is really? absolutely as much of a place as you know shakespeare or any of so it i cannot accept i cannot accept that Lucy. that can't be right can it shakespeare kind of is the is you mean because he's english no because well i think shakespeare has a universality of experience that you can tap into by figaro, listening to figaro has got universality of experience but it's it's often impenetrable people who haven't learnt the codes or learnt the language or learnt well isn't shakespeare impenetrable well, if you haven't learnt the codes or learnt the language it depends how it's presented it depends how it's done so you think you think a wonderfully produced opera can speak to anybody absolutely i do yeah yeah, in the absolutely. way that wonderfully produced Shakespeare come. Yes, yes, well, I that's really interesting. Do. Well, let's talk about Shakespeare briefly because it's the year of uh, the anniversary of his death. There've been numerous productions. We've got Michael Pennington, the Shakespearean actor, mm-hmm. is in this review. He's got a great quote by James Shapiro, who wrote 1606 and 1599, the two really, really good books on Shakespeare. If you're interested in him, we read the newspapers to find out what's happened, and then turn to Shakespeare to understand it, which sounds well hopefully true maybe not true in practice i when people don't turn to newspapers to find out what's happened for a start but if, if <laughs> no. they did if they did but shakespeare can give you this breadth of understanding and they've in this year of the anniversary of death there have been some major productions have mm. there not yep yep and um, lots of leers as michael pennington says to which you yourself have reviewed for us yep uh, in fact i think you're gonna <laughs> i'm not gonna go on <laughs> You, you, might, you might want to mention that in a moment. But Michael Pennington also doesn't mention that he himself was one of the Lears. Um, and it, he was very well well reviewed. But the big one that quite a few people have mentioned was the, was the female Shakespeare yeah, trilogy at which the Which we Don talked Mar. about last, was it last week or the week before? Uh, the week before, yeah, the week, week before. before. And it was well received. It seems to have been almost universally well received. And that went to New York as well. That was in New York and at the Donmar. People said it was wonderful and, and kind of long overdue and all of that sort of thing. But they also talked, talked about the production the framing device of it which is that they were set in a prison it wasn't just all about the f- it wasn't just oh look women exactly was, that's yeah you know, they were interesting productions that kind of did new things and there's no harm in doing new things with shakespeare we kind of all agree because the, 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 well, otherwise like with like, you're stuck it's like with opera otherwise what do you do otherwise you you ossify but the risk reward is pretty high in this area isn't it because you yes. if you try and modernize yeah. shakespeare and the same way as opera i imagine if you get it wrong it can be yeah, sort it's of pretty awful and, awful and off-putting and off-putting Forever. For everyone. Well, I saw Macbeth back in when I was at school. I remember a school trip to Nottingham Playhouse, and it was Mark Rylance Macbeth. Jane Horrocks was Lady Macbeth. I may have told you this uh, story. Have I, I told think, you this before? I think you might have, but do do share uh, it again. Uh, <laughs> and so she was plays Lady Macbeth, and it's set in a Hare Krishna um, commune. Of course. And the the three witches are ravers who are taking ecstasy, and. Uh, Jane Horrocks wets herself on stage when she's doing the, the sleepwalk and she has to wet herself every night and obviously for the, for the show, it's part of the show and it was so, I, it sort of, I remember I was 16, sort of mouth openingly awful, I just couldn't believe I was watching this, it never felt like it was going to end and, and Mark Rylance is very grand in his mannerisms and he obviously, because he was directing as well, believed he was achieving this great modernisation of Shakespeare, mm. it was terrible and then it got to the end and there was this sort of desultory applause by an ossified audience and someone at the back shouted rubbish rip off (laughs) and was it you it wasn't me no but here's the thing he immediately shouted i'm gonna swear now so if if you're offended by this listen away now he immediately shouted fuck off but it was like bang bang like that to the point where i think it was a deliberate response to the critics because the play had been panned as this dreadful representation mm. so of, he was of already he was on the defensive so i kind of or he planted someone i was yeah, going to say or might, he planted it, it might have been someone from the crew sort of saying rubbish ripoff because that's what people have been saying and then he was and, ready and, and, and he was ready with the response but that was an example to me of how you don't do shakespeare and and sure i mean unfortunately there are plenty of examples of, <laughs> of, of people doing that well and adam Mars jones said just I, I won't be go bang on about this but he says the old vic king lear which i did see was memorable not only for glenda jackson's performance but the sharpness of deborah warner's production i can't agree agree with that and my evidence in support of my position rather than adam mars jones's 
that when Edmund walks out at the beginning of uh, the Act One, he has three soliloquies, the first of which is conducted with him skipping, mm. doing press-ups and doing a side plank. And there is no reason whatsoever for that to happen. It's not in the text. It doesn't say whilst doing a side plank. No, uh, maybe it's in the folio and it's, it's been lost. <laughs> there may be an er uh, text of this Bad where it happens. Auto. Yeah. So I found that, she, that Deborah Warner's production was an example of sort of intrusive production where you don't trust the words. And that's the thing I think you have to do with Shakespeare. Either you trust him as the greatest writer of all time and you don't need people doing side planks or you don't. That, I mean, and that's also another thing that happens in opera all the time, that someone's got an aria, or especially with earlier ones where you do, you do the aria and then you kind of recap it again at the end. They just have people wandering about, or in France I saw one where someone's singing their aria, it was very beautiful and very well done, and then a woman just took her clothes off on the side of the stage for absolutely no reason. French. <laughs> French, yeah. French. Yeah. Bit of a focus puller yeah. well, for the person who was singing the aria. This, this but, Lear was the same, full yeah, of nudity. Yeah, Constantly yeah. people are just taking their clothes off, and you think... But it's business. It's business, yeah, the fear of business. Yeah. Did you see any plays this year that you would recall or not wish to recall? Um, I have seen some plays, but... I um, put you on the spot. Can you remember I have any- seen some plays. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I have In seen some life. plays. Yeah. <laughs> I can't remember being bowled over by any of them. So what I would like to talk about instead, if I may segue clumsily, Go on. is a photography exhibition. Okay, that that's good. You go on, that's good. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'd like to commend the, the Photographer's Gallery in London. It's one mm. of my favourite galleries. But they um, they had an exhibition of Sol. I, I always say Lita, but I think it might be lighter. Um, his early, his early colour work, which was just brilliant. And I, I love him. Uh, you know, this is, this is a guy who was taking colour photographs in a time in New York, in a time when artists were saying that that photography wasn't art, and photographers were saying that it was only art if it was in black and white. And then Sol mm. Lisa comes along mm. and says, "Well, actually, no. That the picture is the color. The art is the color." And he just takes these amazing photographs. And so they had a kind of a retrospective there. Um, we, we had a piece on the website. I Lucy. was just going to say, yeah, Matthew Bone is Go talking on. about that, about the about the transition in the way that photography kind of took over configuration in art and how it how everybody had to adjust tremendously because because. Because painting used to be the only way to show things, in a way. Mm. And then suddenly photography could show things. Well, so, exactly. so, so what did painting do? Yeah, we need and to do something different saying, here. Yes, and they were saying, hang on, are we representational or is it art? And yeah. there was a whole kind of... There was Segway a whole thing. into abstract. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's a very good piece, actually. Um, let's talk about film um, briefly. Robert Douglas Fairhurst, one of our film reviewers, has said it was a bad year for people who don't read, which is often the case, as we were overwhelmed with middling adaptations of Philip Roth, an awful remake of Ben-Hur, and fanciful stuff like Pride and Prejudice and zombies, which Robert said was like putting lipstick and dangly earrings on a much-loved pet. Can you think of a good adaptation of a film this year, or indeed any any year? I asked this in the office. I've got a couple of suggestions, but my first knee-jerk reaction, which I think I stand by, was Clueless. Clueless, the best adaptation. One of the best, if not the best, Jane Austen adaptation. Which is, for people who haven't seen it, it is an Alicia Silverstone flick, which Emma is updated into a American high school. But it was one of the first of those American high school things. And plenty of other ones followed, yeah, didn't they? Yeah, things they like did. Things like About You and Which wasn't bad, either. It was fine. But, <laughs> but Clueless arch, is... arch, isn't it? Clueless is, is clever, because it doesn't try and reproduce everything like for like. But why do we think they... Do, I mean, is it just understandable that, that there are... It's a, you know the film industry needs stories and an obvious place to get them are novels because this Philip I mean, neither Philip Roth book is a classic I wouldn't have said uh, well American Pastoral is but Indignation particularly isn't it's a very minor Philip Roth mm. book does it need what is the motivation for for recording this it didn't sound like it was really worth doing at all if anything it sounded more like a play I think that's what Robert kind of said it's not very cinematic no subject I, I think it, it's just it's just a, a lack of confidence maybe they haven't got enough original material or it looks kind of proper if you do a book but the most interesting ones I think are the ones where they you know you don't just take it literally and put it on screen you do something sideways with it or something oblique oh, the, the, the suggestions for, for all time adaptations of novels were Jaws yeah. um, and Blade Runner and I offered up yeah. L.A. Confidential. Runner off, yes, oft-cited. Yeah. Mm. L.A. Confidential, which is a great novel, great genre novel and turned into a rather beautiful film by Curtis Hansen, mm. Mm. starring in lots of people. It's a good film. And yeah. very, very atmospheric. I wonder whether you're always setting yourself up for a fall because obviously you play novels in the screening room of your own head and then to see it in an actual screening room is 
possibly always going to be a disappointment. But it maybe yes. shows a dearth of a dearth of confidence. I mean, what are the great films of this year? What would people say? It was interesting that Michael Pennington suggested a cover. He suggested uh, the Loach film, didn't he? Oh, uh, Daniel Blake. Daniel yeah, Blake. he did. And um, Adam Miles Jones said American Honey, which people said was brilliant, actually. And people liked Nocturnal Animals. Yeah. When I say people, I'm saying this because I haven't seen any of them. I was I was surprised that no one mentioned Anomalisa. Mm. Because I thought that was just brilliant. Explain, I mean, I'm, what, I'm, explain, I'm, explain that then. So Anomalisa is by Charlie Kaufman. I'm a fan of Charlie uh, Kaufman anyway. Being John Malkovich. Eternal, yes, Eternal Sunshine. I love being John those, are, those are his I think being John Malkovich is a lot funnier than Anomalisa. Well, he, <laughs> was, yeah. he was, yes. And he was a screenwriter on Being John Malkovich. I yeah. think I think he, his first directorial role was Synecdoche, mm-hmm. New York. And That's the worst title of any film ever, I think. It's really catchy. Do you not think? I just hate it. I, 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 everything about it annoys me. It's so arch. It's not going to pull people in, no. is it? Uh, anom- Anomalisa, York, it? Yeah. yes. Yeah. Anomalisa is much more simple, mm. I think, in, in a way than his other films. There's a lot less breaking and a lot less kind of layering going on. But it's, it's a very simple, very, very simple story. And he does what we were talking about in relation to Shakespeare and things like all-female casts, where he just does one thing which refreshes the perspective and that one thing is to use animation stop motion animation rather than have humans playing the roles it's beautiful and so so moving and just simple and you think about it for i'm still thinking about it now and i saw it a long 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 time ago that's a great recommendation i did see a film actually i saw lots of films (laughs) most of which i shouldn't mention here because they had superheroes in and things it was the year of the superhero though we had had a lot lot, we had a good piece by uh, Ros Cavney on superheroes. Mm, yes, yeah, yeah, that was a good piece. What was the best superhero film? And before you tell the one where you pretend to be cultured, <laughs> <laughs> the best superhero film was probably uh, Captain America: Civil War. And why was it good? Thought. And because and, and, I'll it, tell you why. For, for a really uncultured reason, because there was a brilliant fight scene in an airport okay. where they were all involved. It was really good fun. <laughs> because do you, you get bad ones as well, don't you? Yes, absolutely. You do. And what's, what's the what's the love of them about then? Because well, as someone who's not a comic book geek, and therefore the whole thing leaves me slightly cold as an ideal. What, what's the what's the great attraction now for them? Do you think, or has I, there always been an attraction? It there has always been an attraction, but it depends how you do it. And my own uh, point of view, there's this big kind of thing now between Marvel and DC, and there's very good characters in both. But the DC films, especially the Batman films, take themselves very, very seriously. They're extremely heavy, extremely ponderous, very long, very dark. Whereas the um, the first Avengers Assemble was directed by... It's either Joss Whedon or J.J. Abrams. I think it's Joss Whedon, which is why it's so good. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, And they're light, and they're fast, and they're clever. And that's what they should be. Okay, uh, and the, and the non comic book film that you're going to the show n- off about? The, the, well, it is it is an animation. Oh, <laughs> no, it's a, well, it's an anime, Japanese anime called Your Name, which was a really beautiful, funny, kind of quite tender um, story about two Japanese teenagers, which I I highly recommend. Well, th- there we go. Then. And before we leave this, uh, then Thea, you with cruel glint in your eyes <laughs> said you wanted to reflect on a flop. In the interest of balance. Yes, mm. yeah, we'll just Let's not be too nice. No. Um, Captain Fantastic. What is I thought that? it was what absolutely was terrible. Fantastic? It was that film, um, so it was directed oh, yes, by Matt yes, Ross, yes, starring yeah, yeah. Viggo Morten- Mortensen. I think in part I feel so anti it because I was in America when it came out earlier in the summer. And so many people came up to me and say, oh, you know, this, this, is, this is a really great film. It's politically very interesting. And it's just trite. It's, it's patronising, simplistic. Mm. What's the point of it? What's the thrust? It's, it's they live in the woods, do they? anti-establishment oh. left-wing, but I'm, I'm left-wing and <laughs> I'm insulted by it. You live in it's the woods in a so, cabin and I live in the woods. Don't you, really? I live in the woods and I have a very rigorous health and fitness regime, yeah. as does Captain Fantastic. But it's it's just absolutely atrocious, and it, and it just really irked me that people were saying it was it was so good. And, it isn't. Don't watch okay. it. It's terrible. Okay. There we go. Let's leave it. Let's <laughs> leave it there. There are lots. Of, it's it's a, actually it's a lovely read. People have taken this in lots of different directions. Is there anything else, Lucy? We should reflect on. People should just go and read it because oh, who does Judith Flanders believe should be our, the next prime minister? Uh, why the <laughs> new director of the English National Ballet, of course? Who, as one of the other editors helpfully pointed out, he said no, she can't because she's Spanish. And I was saying no, I, I don't. I don't think that she really thinks that she can be. Tamara Roja. I think is how you say it. She thinks she should be the next prime and minister. Why is that? You heard it here first. And why is that briefly? 
Because she has completely revitalised the English... Which one is it? English, English National. National Ballet. Uh, so let's move on. This is the final segment of our podcast this year. You're going to stick around for it, Lucy, because there's a drink in because it for you. Because there's a drink involved. <laughs> and so I'm going to open some champagne. I've been told we're not allowed to open champagne in the studio, but in an act of really Would startling... Would that be health and safety, Startling daring. I'm going to do it anyway. Oh, David, our producer, is nodding in an understanding fashion. It's also fitting, because in our Christmas double issue, we have an article on champagne by... Our philosophy editor, Tim Crane, commissioned by our own feisty wine taster, <laughs> Thea Lena Dutzi. I'm pushing my luck out. Got to stop saying yeah. that. He has uh, reviewed the story of champagne by Nicholas Faith. It's also been paired with a piece of philosophy on taste, a review of a book by Nicola Perullo called Taste as Experience, which Julian Bagini has done for us. Uh, I should, I should oh, point out, actually, sorry, it's Nicola, because if you say Nic- Nicola, it sounds like a woman, but Nicola is a man. Ah, that's See, that, that's, I, I have my uses. You do. <laughs> Pronunciation guru returns. Uh, so our Cambridge philosophy professor Tim Crane is doubly qualified to talk both about wine, because he likes it, and the philosophy of tasting, because he's a philosopher. Uh, and he joins us now to talk about it. Tim, how are you doing? I'm very well, thanks, Stig. I have a you? bottle of champagne, so I'm going to ask you a question, and as you talk to Lucy and Thea, I'm going to engage the lengthy process of, of, of opening it, and <laughs> you might hear a pop at some point. And one of us saying, ow. Yeah, exactly. I will try not to aim it at anyone. Uh, But you point out in your review, Tim, a fascinating fact, I thought, that the champagne phenomenon is just kind of extraordinary. Worldwide, 312 million bottles of champagne were sold in 2015, and that's 5 billion euros of revenue. And and I wonder whether the first question, therefore, is why are we all so happy, or so many people so happy, to spend so much money on champagne? Well, this is really the question that preoccupied me when I was writing the review. I'm not sure I've got an answer to it. But it is quite extraordinary that people are prepared to spend the amount of money that they wouldn't be prepared to spend on a bottle of wine. After all, champagne is just a bottle of wine, after all, but it has this... uh has this meaning and significance for 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 us? Is that a tri- the, is that a triumph of advertising or triumph of is it popular culture or historical culture? I'm just trying to think of who's pulling the strings of this. Are we being manipulated by somebody? Yeah, I think it is. A, it is a triumph of all those things. Some cultural forces of which advertising is is part, and the. Ooh. Association. Did you hear the pop? Did you hear the pop there, Tim? There we go. We've got we've got it here. We're having a glass of champagne as we're discussing this. So, Garrett, carry on. I really. What, what are you drinking? What is it, it is uh, Bollinger. 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 Wonderful. Yeah. I suppose one of one of the most compelling things about the whole phenomenon, though, is is that champagne starts out so unpromisingly, doesn't it? Yes. Mm, I was yeah. reading your description of it, Tim. I, I love. Will you also tell us about the Riddler? Because I thought that was wonderful. <laughs> because because at one point, I, just, I kind of went, oh, that sounds disgusting. But anyway, yeah. sorry, do tell. I've just um, it, given it away. Yes, I, I've never... Apparently, the, the wine that they make, because they start off by making a normal dry wine, um, which then is fermented in the bottle, which creates the sparkle. But the normal dry wine is, is completely dreary and um, undistinguished. I mean, the thing to bear in mind is that champagne is actually quite far north, and it takes a lot to get the grapes ripe enough to produce enough sweetness and enough sugar that will then turn into alcohol. So another aspect of the story that, that, that I mentioned is how much sugar is added to champagne in the, in the various parts of the, the champagne-making process. But, um, but yes, coming back to, to the question of... Well, sorry, there are two questions. One is, how, how did the champagne how did the champagne manage to persuade everyone to spend all this money on this, on this you know, wonderful drink? But there are plenty of other wonderful drinks out there. And um, I think that's a very interesting question. I don't think that champagne is a scam. It really, in some sense, it's worth the money because it's a high-quality product that has uh, a lot of work has gone into it. Explain what that work is, uh, uh, Tim, because um, you started that. It'd be interesting because I I read this article with no idea whatsoever how you made champagne other than this notion that it was was fizzier wine. Um, What's the the labour-intensive part of it? So the labour-intensive part is that, um, first of all, they make the wine. That's straightforward. And then, then the wine is put into these very heavy bottles and then some sugar is added and possibly some yeast is added depending on whether there's yeast around or not whether they need to add artificial yeast they'll add the sugar and the yeast and then it ferments in the bottle so the bottles have to be very firmly sealed so that they don't explode because the fermentation creates carbon dioxide now so that's very different from these huge industrial scale ways of making fizzy wine where wine is has just carbon dioxide dissolved in it or that the second fermentation takes place in a in a in a sealed huge tank and then and then it's bottled afterwards so each individual bottle goes through this second fermentation process and then then there's this um, fantastic moment where they have to get the product of the fermentation I mean, the product of the fermentation is is 
carbon dioxide, but also then there's the leftover yeast cells, and they uh, would be rather unpleasant to have in the bottle, and they want to get them out of the bottle. So the bottles are tilted, and there is a man who's in English is called a riddler, in French is a remeur, who goes round turning the bottle every day, very slightly, maybe for up to six weeks. Every day, this person would, historically anyway, would turn each individual bottle just a little bit so that the sediment slips down into the neck of the bottle. So talk about labour-intensive. I mean, that's um, an amazing amount of work that someone... Is it, it, must got... be, is it automated now, do you think, Tim? Is so that... these days it's automated, yeah. They have these, these big machines. Are prices of champagne going down, then, as they automate the process? I don't, I don't think so. Well, there, no. are, there are also some, some places, you were pointing out to me, Lucy, that still do have a Riddler that does a hand, hand Riddler. A hand yes. Riddler, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or, they, or they've made kind of great play of it. They're still riddled yeah. by hand. And that, that is presumably the champagne that, that Kanye West buys. <laughs> yes, because I was thinking about it, it's very pervasive. It's not because I think it used to be a kind of very kind of posh, you know, only a few people had it. But then it, it also became yeah. hip, didn't it? Because it's the yeah. it's the hip hop mm. drink of choice. And Jay Z had a whole thing. They all uh, used notori- to drink Crystal. Notorious, obviously, started sort of started it. He's- Yes. He would sing about it and oh, yeah. be always pictured with it. And Tim, you mentioned yes. Usain Bolt. Bolt, what's his role in the <laughs> champagne world? Usain Bolt was appointed by the, the Mum Champagne House to be the CEO, which they call the Chief Entertainment Officer. I'm not, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure this will, will involve, but uh, I can imagine it would be great fun. I think we're all available if they'd like to. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the job pitches start now. So is it the case, Tim, that with your oinophile hat on is champagne always superior to sparkling wine no i don't think so i mean i think for example english sparkling wine which is made in the champagne method uh, is uh, a lot of that is really superb and uh, has won competitions against champagne on blind tasting so that this is where english wine is really coming up the english sparkling wine is, is terrific i well i would like to know actually and i feel i probably should already know this and and therefore apologies to my fellow lombards but i would like to know that whether there is a difference in the process between making a, a, a traditional champagne and making Franciacorta, which is made in Lombardy. It's the same, the same number of fermentations, the same additions of sugars and, and uh, the, the liqueur de tirage, I think it's called. And so I, I would like to know what the difference is there, because I... I was about to say I grew up on non Franca Corta. I was, but I raised, on I was raised on it, and it's done me no harm Mother's whatsoever. Milk to me. But that doesn't have such a, a, no. a sort of a, a global brand, does it, Tim? I suppose. No, I think Franca Corta is is the best Italian sparkling wine in my my experience. I'm not I'm not really an expert on this on on this subject, but um, as far as I know, it's made in the, in the Champagne method. Yeah. So um, there's been a bit of a um, some people like Prosecco very much. Um, I'm not a big fan of Prosecco, but some people like it. But I think it, it may be hard to tell a sparkling wine that's made in the champagne method using the, the champagne grapes. Um, people always make from, claims from for things champagne. like the, the bubbles, don't they? The, oh, the bubbles, the, it's a different bubble yeah, size. Or... I couldn't go into the, the bubble size, but that's another very interesting <laughs> Uh, very interesting subject because the size of the bubble also part depends on the um, on the the actual surface texture of the glass because the carbon dioxide is released. Oh, of course, when it's, it interacts yeah. with the with imperfections in the glass. Well, Tim, these are clearly. That's- these are clearly deep waters, and the only thing I can encourage everyone to do, therefore, is go off and investigate them further. Um, research I'm, responsibly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we, we need to research this more. But, uh, Tim, thank you so much for doing it, because actually, what better way, uh, to, what better article to have in our Christmas double issue than something that genuinely, I had no idea how champagne was made, and now, thanks to you, I have a clear idea. So thank you very much indeed for that. Thanks, Steve. Um, that's almost all we have time for this week. Let me thank on behalf of Thea and me, James O'Brien, Lucy Dallas and Tim Crane. And thank you for listening over the last few months. This is the 26th episode of the podcast uh, since we relaunched it in June. Our audience has got bigger as we've gone along and we do really enjoy doing this every week for you. Thea, any highlights? Uh, over the last 20 loads loads actually yeah Seamus Perry on D.H. Lawrence very good Uh, Ruth Scar on Elena Ferrante our own David Horsepool on on A History of Violence that was very good Tim Crane again on The Ethics of Meat Eating Um, the Dr. Michael Keynes the Dr. Michael Keynes always yes and it was also great to get the insider kind of perspective I think on on Turkey we had William Armstrong on uh, many episodes ago and also Jan Dondar explaining what's going on Um, explaining what was going on for them well uh, you've gone very highbrow on that Thea I'm going to lower the tone by saying my highlight of the whole thing was when an unnamed (laughs) 
con- contributor to the podcast, uh, Skyped in. We had a Skype call. And he did not realise that this was a visual Skype, not just an audio Skype, and conducted it in the nude. So our producer, David, was... Uh, I was going to say twiddling the knobs, but I better not go down, go down there. But in any shaking event, his head. He's now shaking his head. But we had a major literary figure of the Western canon talking to us naked. Uh, we don't know how naked he was, because we could only see from the waist up. But sufficient, it's only fair to point yeah, that out. Sufficiently naked to make us, to make us uh, concerned. So that is my highlight of the first 25 or 26 podcasts. We God knows what 2017 will bring. So, But please do subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back in January with very much more of the same. Our first issue of the new year has a long piece on the shameful history of lobotomy, which is pretty shocking. We'll be digging into that, no doubt. This week's paper is our bumper festive double issue now on sale with the pieces we've been discussing plus Bernard Porter on our nostalgia for 1956, the ever nostalgic Jim Campbell on Patrick Lee Fermer, Clarissa Hyman on the history of fruit, Jonathan Barnes on cultural histories of Christmas and Charlotte Jones on swallows and Amazons and much, much more. You can visit our website the-tls.co.uk to read it all and learn more about our print and digital subscriptions and do come back daily to the site for new original pieces from TLS writers including Will McCaskill on the ethics of giving at Christmas, Kate Newey on gender issues in pantomime and Sarah Perry's answering our 20 questions. And in a departure for us, Thea, she doesn't hate a Victorian book. She hates On the Road. That's yeah. interesting. She's turned her fire on, which I kind of have something. I came to On the Road thinking it would be amazing and it, mm. it left me semi-cold yeah. at least uh, please follow us on Twitter like us on Facebook and review us on iTunes over the festive period we'll be running recordings from the TLS literary event at King's Place in London last month with contributions from Mary Beard and Alan Hollinghurst among others so do look out for that and we'll be back in the new year where we'll be developing the podcast yet further and maybe even change its name we shall see where we get quite to on that quite a cliffhanger quite a cliffhanger until then from Thea and from me have a wonderful Christmas and an enchanting new year goodbye Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.